been my habit for some years to use the NASB, so I'm using it again today. So if you're using a different translation, you may find uh, one or two words that will differ, but it's not going to be very different. So I'm sure you'll be able to follow through. Very familiar story, John's Gospel and chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they've no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour hasn't yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine till now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Hold on. Okay. No, I'm not sure. Sorry. Your eyes are closed in prayer. Amazing things happen. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's okay. Pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you for the experience of you, Lord, in the workplace, in the home, in our families, in our life, in every department. We thank you, Lord. We thank you now for the gathered church, the people gathered in the name of Jesus. We bless you for your promise to be present at such a time. We thank you that you're here with us now. And Holy Spirit, we just look to you. We thank you, Father, for your promise that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we now ask you, Father, let your Spirit come on us now. Come now, Lord. Rest upon our thinking, our hearing. Rest upon our hearts. Let what we do now be a supernatural thing. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few weeks ago, one of the elders of the church that I've been in for years in Brighton, he came to church with his family, his children, and... uh, uh, they sat up on the bleachers around the back and uh, uh, he just settled them, settled his wife, settled his children and uh, he opened the weekly news sheet. We have a, a weekly news sheet at the church and uh, it tells you what's happening that week. And uh, his name's Steve Horn. And, uh, uh, and he sat there and he opened it and saw what was happening this week and turned the page and it said, Today, Steve Horn is preaching at Heathfield Church. And uh, he spoke to his wife and his children, said goodbye, fled the building, got in his car, and drove the kind of 30 miles or whatever it is uh, to Heathfield. He reckoned he got there. And uh, quite an experience. I know for myself, I remember when I was at uh, Stonely Bible Week one, son, uh, one year, and uh, we were working our way through um, an evening series. And it got pretty big, Stonely. You may never have heard of it because the years slipped by. But uh, as we grew and grew and grew, in the end, there were 28,000 at Stonely. And uh, it was quite a privilege to stand on that platform and look at this kind of sea of faces. And the worship had concluded. And uh, I just moved to the back of the platform and, and took my seat and uh, picked up my uh, Bible to just glance at my notes uh, before preaching uh, this uh, third or whatever it was uh, in the series. And uh, I looked at my Bible and I, 
I look for my notes and uh, there's yesterday's notes, but where are tonight's notes? And, and they're not there. And I look at these thousands of people and I, I think I'm on next and, uh, oh grief, what do I do? And, uh, I, I remember I, I thought, well, there's nothing for it. I just moved very carefully over to this edge of this huge platform and got out and I ran across the stonely and there were a few ladies outside with their babies, you know, and they're looking, what's Terry Virgo doing running up here? And I, I got up to my place and I got my stuff and I ran back down again. I thought, oh God, here I go. I got on the platform and I forgot there was one extra item. I thought, thank you, Jesus. And uh, I just completely forgot that was happening. So there wasn't like thousands of faces thinking, where's he gone? Uh, but they, they were all just watching what was happening. And I just came up a little bit puffed, but just took my place as though it was wonderful, really. And why am I telling you these stupid stories? Well, they're kind of stories about kind of impending embarrassment. Uh, embarrassment that's just kind of under the surface but hasn't surfaced yet. And this is what's happening here at this, this wedding. Everybody's enjoying the party. Everybody's having fun. It's a great occasion. Uh, Wendy and I once were, well, actually been twice in Israel, and we went to Cana once, and uh, it's a bustling little town now, but then it would have been a tiny village, and I guess that the wedding would have been maybe the annual, the big event of the year. Uh, you know, the one day we're all looking forward to, this great time. And there's a terrible tragedy under the surface. Namely, they're going to run out of wine. And, uh, I mean, the shame of it, the sense of, wow, we failed this, the village, we failed the family. What a shame that, you know, it was a terrible thing. It all just died out, it just went down the pan. And uh, at the moment, no one knows about it. At the moment, everybody's enjoying the party, but under the surface... There's a tragedy looming. We're not going to make it. This is going to end up terribly. And they just kind of told one person at the moment, Mary, we're getting out of wine. We're in trouble. And this story is in the Bible for us, for our sake. And it's written for people who are wondering if they're going to make it. And maybe this morning you're at the party. And we're enjoying God together and we're singing our joyful praise. But under the surface, you're beginning to wonder, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I'm running out of energy, running out of money, running out of time. We're running out of answers. We're running out of hope. That can happen. You can get that sense. I don't know if I, I'm running out of the ability to meet other people's expectations. I can't do this. And at the moment, yeah, hello, good to see you this morning. But underneath, you're thinking, I don't know if we're going to make this. Maybe you're a single mum, and you think, I I don't know how we're going to get through. It's so difficult. Maybe you're a student, and you've set off on a course, and, and you're into it, and you think, boy, I think I've bitten off more than I can chew here. I don't know if I've got what it takes to do this. I'm sure I'm not sure I can complete this. Should I opt out? Should I drop out? I don't know if I can get through. You could even be actually a very successful businessman and, and people at the, at the workplace are saying, hey, we're really impressed with you, but we've got new goals for you. Uh, we really want you to reach for this. We just feel your potential is phenomenal. And you're thinking, well, yeah, but. And you go home and your wife's saying, we just don't see enough of you now. And the church is saying, hey, we really see God's on you, and we feel we'd like you to do that. You think, come on, I, how much more can I do? So it, this kind of, I don't know if I can make it, can loom up in all kinds of different ways. It can creep up on us. We suddenly think, I'm not sure I've got what I need to get through this. And at the moment, nobody knows about that. It's all fine. We're all enjoying. But maybe you've spoken to one other person and said, I think we're running out. I don't know if I... I'm going to make it. And this Bible story is there for us. The Bible's so relevant. It's for us. It's to help us. It's to see how God sees us in those sort of situations. And it's interesting that John says in the uh, 20th chapter of this gospel, we know he was led by the Holy Spirit to write, but he himself says this at the end of the gospel. He says there are many other signs which Jesus performed, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written 
in this book. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing you might have life in his name. All right, so John didn't write randomly. He wrote with purpose. He wrote to inspire faith. He wrote to fill in the gaps. He wrote to enlarge our awareness of who Jesus is. He had a purpose. He said, I'm writing this. You might believe Jesus is the Christ. And that believing, see, it's different for us. It's not like I'm writing this so you might believe that Julius Caesar really lived or Napoleon was a true historical figure. It's not just saying I'm writing you to, to prove that he's historically there. I, that by believing, something happens. You have life. That's the unique thing about believing in Jesus. It's not just an academic interest. There is a dynamic that comes into play when you believe in him. And then as you believe in him, life breaks through. So John's got a goal, an objective in writing these things. He says this, he said many other signs Jesus did. And John uniquely calls seven of Jesus' miracles signs. The other uh, writers of gospel stories don't use that word. John does. He says they're signs. They're pointing somewhere. A sign is there to give direction. It's saying, hey, there's more beyond. And so you'll find on seven occasions... They're called signs. This one's the first one. This one, it says at the end of the reading, I just read to you, this first sign was at the wedding of Cana. Others were when he, for instance, healed the blind. The man born blind, he healed him, and then he taught, I am the light of the world. And then he fed thousands supernaturally. Then he taught, I am the bread of life. And some of these miracles are called signs. They're saying more than just the event that took place. And this is the first one. This is the first sign that Jesus performed. It's telling us something bigger than the actual event. It's more than just about wine at a wedding. It's a sign. It's pointing somewhere. And I trust we can see something of that even as we read it together. So this is a very important story. So let's get into the story. So it's a wedding. And... uh, The commentators tell us that weddings in this era, in this location, could last up to seven days. The party could last seven days. I mean, they knew how to party, eh? Like seven-day party. Uh, They would be there, gathered together, the village celebrating, enjoying this exciting event, this, this big, long party. And Jesus is there at this wedding. And I've never attended a, a Jewish wedding. I've seen movies. I've seen documentaries of uh, Jewish weddings. And I, I, I just want to say this, that they look fun places to be. Uh, and it looks like you can see these guys and they're dancing and they've got you know, their arms around one another's shoulders. And you think, wow, that looks fun. You know? And I don't think Jesus would have been kind of like a wallflower looking on. thinking, mm, what's all this? He was there. And I want us to see that Jesus was happy to perform his first sign at a party. I wonder if your image of Jesus fits that. That he was happy to display his glory, it says, they beheld his glory at a party. That's an extraordinary thing. That's not what you'd expect. You may remember that when the Spirit came upon Jesus, when he was baptized, and a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. And Jesus is stepping into his ministry. You might remember he was then tempted by Satan. And Satan said, look, you want to do a sign. I suggest you hurl yourself down from the temple uh, and, and do a, a sign, a religious context at the temple, something dramatic. And it's like Jesus is saying, no thanks, I'll do it at a party. Jesus is happy to be at a party. Is your Jesus happy to be at a party? See, it's so important we get a clear view of Jesus. And we can tend to think, well, Jesus would only be at, he'd only be at church, wouldn't he? He'd only be at the synagogue, the temple. I mean, that's where Jesus would be. No, he's at a party. And he's happy to be at a party. See, Jesus came, he didn't say, I have come that you might have meetings and that you might have them abundantly. <laughs> he, he wants to get into our lives. It's so beautiful to hear some of these testimonies this morning. Where Jesus is there in the office. Jesus is there. Even when we're watching television, we're looking beyond. We're thinking, gosh, I feel, you know, God, God can be in our lives. He wants to get into your life, into my life. He doesn't want us to think of Jesus is just here on Sunday mornings for a couple of hours. And then we go off and get on with life. Then we kind of leave him here and struggle with life. No, he wants to be in life. 
He wants to be right there with us. He's happy to perform a sign at a party. He's here. He's celebrating. He's part of it. He's happy to be at a place where, to be honest, at the wedding, he wouldn't have been the center of attention even. At a wedding, you know, the bride, the groom, they're the center of attention. He's happy to be at a place where he's not the center of attention. He's just there. Emmanuel, God with us in our lives. And then notice too, it's not just any old party. It is a wedding party. He's happy to do his first sign at a wedding. Now, very often, if you attend a wedding, you'll find in the kind of preliminaries that the minister will say something like, Jesus of Nazareth, by his presence at the wedding of Cana, was affirming marriage, etc. And certainly, let's just make this point. God is for marriage. We need to say that today. We need to make that clear. God is for marriage. Marriage is not just a social thing we've invented. The Bible makes it very clear that the Bible, right from the very beginning in Genesis, in fact, it kind of begins with a marriage and comes with this statement. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They'll become one flesh. It's like God, right at the very beginning of the Bible, God institutes this, this covenant relationship, this commitment. Now, in our day, that's kind of going out of date. I heard on the radio just a couple of weeks ago, 47% of children born in this country in the last year were born outside of wedlock. 47%. And they reckon it'll just be about another five years and then it'll come over. More than half the children of our nation will not be born in a married situation. More than half. It's like marriage. Who needs it? Who needs the paperwork? Who needs the problems? And so a girl gets this wonderful invitation from a guy. He says, will you? And she thinks, ah, move in with me. Oh. That's the idea. Just move in. Let's just move in together. Let's get some free sex together. Let's see how we can make out. And maybe, maybe, who knows where this will lead. Now, it's not because that's kind of statistically proven to be very effective. But it's becoming more and more. Hey, look, you know, we don't need all this. Let's just try out, let's be together. Who knows? Now, God is for marriage. God is for commitment. God is for forsaking all others. I give myself to you. God is for covenant love. God is for marriage. So maybe it shouldn't be such a big surprise that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. The Bible starts with a marriage. Where does it end? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where it ends. That's where the whole story ends. Marriage is very central to speaking of God's relationship with us. Jesus is coming seeking not an easy relationship, let's see how it goes, but a permanent, committed, loving, covenant relationship. He's seeking a people. He's seeking a bride. In fact, John the Baptist, who led probably the biggest spiritual awakening in Israel's history, it says all Judea went out to hear John. I mean, this is a massive awakening. And they have said to John, are you the one? Are you the one we're waiting for? Are you, are you the Messiah? I said, no, 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 I'm not the one. And then he said this, I am the friend of the bridegroom. That's how he introduced Jesus. He's the bridegroom. He's coming looking for a bride. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. He, he's at a wedding. That's the way he's going to do his first sign. He loves, he loves marriage. It says in Micah, it's a famous little kind of proverbial statement, there are three, three things the Lord requires of you, O man, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And that central one, to love mercy, it's a, it's a Hebrew word, chesed. And it's translated in all sorts of different ways. I think Tyndale made up the phrase loving kindness. You'll find tender mercies. You'll find steadfast love. All kinds of phrases throughout the Old Testament to try and capture this beautiful word that speaks of God's committed love. The root of it is covenant love. And this is what the Lord requires of us, to love covenant love. See, sometimes in marriage, you can go through difficult patches. Actually, that can be one of the places where you can think, 
the wine's running out. It's somehow not like it used to be. It's not, it's lost something of its sparkle. It's not as it was. I don't know if we're going to make it. But the Lord requires us to love working out covenant love. That's what the Lord requires of us. It's, our modern world says, well, look, you know, I used to love you, but I need to be true to my heart. I must have integrity. I love my secretary more now. So goodbye. I'm off with her. The Lord requires of us to love covenant love, working out covenant. So Jesus is happy to affirm marriage. He's happy to say, no, I'm for this. I'm for this. And yet we know that can be a place where Oh, we're running out. Maybe this morning you've come somewhat anxious. Maybe not many people know about it. Maybe this is a setting where you've said, maybe to one close friend, we're in trouble. We're running out. So this is a, this is a story for people who are running out, who are in difficulty. Jesus is happy to be at a wedding. Right, let's press on with the story. And we see as we press on through the story, Jesus having a strange conversation with his mother. Did you notice it? He says to her, Or she says to him, rather, they have no wine, verse 3. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? That's a funny way to talk to your mother. Woman, and uh, if you use the New International Version, they're so kind of shocked by it that they put the word dear in there. But (laughs) if you have a biro, feel totally free to cross out dear, because it simply isn't in the Greek at all. It's just the... The, the Greek word, gune, woman. It's the same word Jesus used when he spoke to the woman at the well in John 4, who's had five husbands. The guy she's with now is not a husband. He talks to her like this, woman. He's saying this to his mother, woman. Wow, what a strange way to speak to your mother. Now, I don't want to overstate it because when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down at Mary and he says, woman, behold your son. Same there, just there, gune, just woman. You think, wow, it's obviously full of tenderness, actually. So I don't want to overstate it, but to be honest, if that's strange, and it is, it's not the word we would necessarily use, what follows is even stranger. Uh, The NASB says this, what does this have to do with us? The NIV says, why do you involve me? Apparently, it's a very difficult colloquial phrase to translate literally because if you translate it word for word literally you come up with what to me and to you so you try and translate that what if and they come up with phrases like this what have i got to do with you now if you know your bible well and familiar with phrases like that you'll think i've heard that somewhere else in the gospel what have i got to do with you that's the very, it's exactly the same phrase. And where do you find it? Well, you may already be remembering. It's where Jesus encounters demon-possessed people. That's where you find it. You find it several times in the Gospels. Jesus, like he crosses the lake, he comes to Legion, who's full of demons, and Jesus approaches him, and he turns on Jesus and says, What do I got to do with you? You know, we are many. Oh, you know, so, <laughs> it, well, what's he saying? He's like, what are you? You and I have got nothing in common. That's the sort. What have I got to do with you? How, you know, we, you are other than I. This is God coming to me. This demonic, his awareness. What have I got to do with you? Now, Jesus uses that phrase. I don't suppose he turned to Mary at the wedding and said, What have I got to do with you? I don't think so. <laughs> All right, I don't think he's like that. But I think what he's doing is saying something very strange to his mother. What's he, why is he doing this? Why does he speak to her like this? But I'd like to kind of suggest some things to you. I think that what's happening here is that Jesus has begun his public ministry. Now, prior to this, Jesus would have been in the home of Mary and Joseph. And you again, you just find these things in the Bible. It says quite simply, there were other brothers and sisters. Obviously, Jesus, uniquely virgin-born, we know that. But Joseph and Mary, there were other brothers and sisters, it says so in the Scriptures. So then you find also that Joseph kind of disappears. And most commentators would suggest that probably Joseph died comparatively young. He's gone. And, and so I want to suggest to you that probably Jesus was like the center, the rock, 
that she probably leaned on him a lot. Imagine Jesus. I mean, this is, you've got Jesus in the home. We know that when he was a very small child, he was kind of lost at the temple. He wasn't lost, but they couldn't find him. They were, they were traveling with the extended family. And they think, where's Jesus? They asked the uncles and aunts. No, he's not with us. No. Oh, go back. They go back. And they, they, they meet with Jesus, little boy. And it says this. He went and was obedient to them. So he's, he's abs- actually, the Bible says this. Jesus was innocent. He never, ever sinned. So he's in the home, he's a perfect child, he grows up, he's a perfect teenager. Think about it for a minute. Oh, perfect teenager. Okay, He comes through his 20s, then it says, I think in Luke's gospel, when he began to be about 30 years of age, he stepped into the public light. He was baptized and so on. So he's living right through to his 30s in the home. And I would think that he would have been everything you would imagine a kind, loving, reliable son would have been when maybe the husband's not there anymore. Maybe has died. And now I'm sure she got used to leaning on Jesus, as it were, trusting him, expecting him. Now, I don't mean he would do miracles because there's no evidence, whatever, that he did anything supernatural before the Spirit came upon him. And he inaugurated the kingdom. No, it would have been, yeah, he would just be loving, kind, thoughtful, willing to serve, I'm sure. Don't you think so? And now we've come to this point in his life. It says he's at the wedding, so it's kind of a social occasion. But then it also says he had disciples with him. In other words, this wedding is a kind of overlap moment. In Jesus' life, he's he's like a he, it's a social event. He's there with his mother. It's you know the wedding. You have to be at the wedding. We all know that. All the other must I'll be at the wedding. He's at the wedding, but some disciples have started gathering. The kingdom is beginning to develop. He's got people. Peter, James, John, guys, come with me. They're they're with him now. And now I'm at the wedding, and suddenly this overlap is happening. And she turns to him and says, "Jesus, they've no wine." And Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'll go and get a few bottles. I'll get some wineskins. He doesn't say that. He says, what have you got to do with me? And it's almost as though I would suggest that he's drawing a line in the sand and saying, Mary, it's a new day. You just need to understand it's different now. It's not how it used to be. D.A. Carson, I find a very helpful commentator. And he, the expression that Jesus used is at least a measured rebuke. He goes on to say this, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. Okay, just read that last phrase again. He's declaring at the beginning of his ministry... His utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. It's like, Mary, I'm not here simply for you. I'm not, I'm not coming into your agenda. I'm not here to be manipulated. That's what Carson is saying, and I think he's right. He's saying, look, it's a new day, Mary. I'm not just here for you. So uh, isn't he going to solve this problem then? You know, they're out of wine. Is that irrelevant? Is, is he not going to do anything about it? Oh, yeah, he's going to, as we'll see. But he needs, they, they need to understand it's not as they might have expected. Now, now why do I underline this? Well, to be honest, because we, we tend sometimes to be a bit like this. We expect Jesus to kind of be there for us. And you can be like that. You know, I've got my job, I've got my wife, my children, and my pension. And I've got Jesus. Hallelujah. It's great having Jesus. I mean, he's just so helpful. He's there for me. You know, you're jiving. So, Lord, parking place, please. Oh, thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. You know, he's there for us. He just does stuff for us. And uh, you can somehow think of Jesus, you know, just rub, the, rub the, 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 the vessel. Out comes the genie. Jesus, do this for me. Do this for me. And Lord, come on, Lord, come on, Lord, do this. And sometimes people leave the church. They don't come anymore to the meetings. And you pursue them and you say, uh, 
you, know, you don't come. What's up? And sometimes they'll say things like this. He never did anything for me. Like, that's what it's all about. He's just doing things for us. And sometimes we can, we can be a bit like that. Jesus is there for us. That's great having Jesus there for us. I mean, life's full and so great having Jesus along. He just solves your problems. And I think what we're trying to say is that, hey, that's not the whole deal, actually. That's not what it's about. Now, he is going to solve the problem, but let's, let's notice what happened. He doesn't just jump. He doesn't just become subservient. Actually, very much the opposite. Mary says this, whatever he says to you, you do it. Now, doesn't she do well? <laughs> I mean, when you've had somebody say to you, what have I got to do with you? I mean, some people would leave the church on that one. They said that, that to me at the church. I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. But she, she does so well, doesn't she? Doesn't Mary do well? She says, whatever he says to you, do it. You know, that's almost the gospel. It's not. There's whole loads of stuff we also need to know. But there's a, there's a very vital key here. And she's really got clear. Whatever he says to you, you do it. She's really shedding some light into this situation. And Jesus is going to solve this problem. But notice the way he saves it. He solves the problem by giving instructions that are specific, that are unreasonable, that require faith and obedience. Isn't that true? He gives instructions that are clear, unreasonable, and require faith and obedience. What's happening? The kingdom of God is coming into this party. The reign of Christ. The wisdom of God. Another wisdom is breaking in. The rule of God is breaking into this wedding. Not just rushing out to get wine. Taking over. Giving instructions that are very clear. Whatever he says to you, do it. And he comes in and says, right, I want you to fill the water pots. You might, I can imagine being there. Imagine, imagine, you know, you've run out of wine. And you say, Jesus, we are out of wine. He says, okay. Fill the water pots. Uh, no, Jesus, I don't think you're listening. Uh, there's no problem with the water. Uh, we're out of wine, Lord. We, we, we got no wine. We're in trouble with wine. Okay. Fill the water pots. Jesus, listen, listen. There's no problem with water. Uh, uh, you're not listening. The problem is wine. You need, we need some wine. We're out of wine. Okay. Fill the water pots. We don't understand. Which part of fill the water pots don't you understand? See, it's like, okay, but that doesn't make sense. I didn't say I was going to make sense. I said, I'm going to tell you how to solve it. You know, that is so important. See, something, you may have come this morning, you may have met a Christian and said, come to our church and you've, you've popped in here this morning and, and you maybe have, you've already worked with this lady, this guy. You know them and you think there's something about them. There's, <laughs> they seem to be at peace. They seem to have something about them. And you come in, you think, wow, I don't know. They all seem to be, there's something about these people. And you say, can I find peace? Can you, have you got peace? And they say, well, we want to talk to you about Jesus and how he died on a, no, no, not interested in Jesus. Come on. Peace. You seem to have peace. 21st century peace. How do you cope in this? I mean, the, the economy. Uh, what's happening in the world? How do you have peace? Well, can we talk to you about Jesus and what happened in, 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 in Jerusalem? You know, look, look, what happened in Jerusalem with some Jewish people 2,000 years ago is not really relevant to now. I want to find peace. Now, sometimes we're trying to work it out ourselves. We just like to add a little bit of peace to my world. And, 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 and you're not going to get there, right? You're not going to get there until you hear Jesus. And you hear about what he's accomplished, what happened on the cross. And you don't realize your problem's bigger than you realized. And God's dealt with it amazingly, with huge kindness, sending an innocent person to take the guilt of the world. To send a beautiful, perfect person 
who embraced all our sin. And when you know that, and when you believe that, this is the promised Christ, and he's taken all our guilt, you can step into life, innocence, good conscience, peace with God. See, we have to listen to what he says. It's what, it's what he says to us. It's learning, it's learning that he, he, he will solve this problem. But he doesn't solve the problem by running out and getting some wine. He solves the problem by taking over. You may say, well, I've got problems in my life. The way they get solved is by listening to him, even when what he says seems unreasonable, and doing it with faith and obedience and stepping into his rule, his kingdom, his letting him run it. When he starts running it, we find amazing things happen. When he starts running the party, you get gallons of super wine. He takes away the shame. He takes away, we are going to be the party that's always remembered that we messed up. Yeah, everyone will, do you remember that wedding? Right now, what a pathetic party. What a pathetic wedding. And we, it's under the surface, but soon it's going to be known. Wow, were we in trouble. And he can save that. But the way he does it, the way he can save you is when you say, Lord, whatever you say. Whatever you say. We're not saying, Lord, hey, solve this for me. Run around, do this. No, no. I will, I will tell you what to do. That's how. You see, for me, when I, get, when I became a Christian, which happened when I was 16, my parents were not Christians. I'd never seen an open Bible in my home. We never prayed or went to church or anything. Uh, they were not Christian. They became Christian, thank God, many years later. But my sister went to London. She'd been to drama college. She's going on the stage. And actually, Billy Graham had been in London. And someone she'd met who was interested in being on the stage herself got saved and led my sister to Christ. She came home for the weekend and she said, I came home one night and she said, I've become a Christian. I said, what are you talking about? I've been born again. What on earth is that? Born again? I didn't know anything of this stuff. I didn't know. And she said, no, I know God is my father. I know my sins are all forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven. I mean, I'd never heard anybody talk like that ever before. And I argued. I said, how can you know this? And during the evening, she's telling me what's happened. And I can see she's so changed. I suddenly know it's true. I suddenly believe it. And that very night, I knelt down in my home in my, uh, my parents' lounge. And I just asked Christ to save me. Come into my life. But what I did actually was like this. I had lots of other idols, things I lived for, whole gang of friends, things we used to do. And it's like I said, Jesus, please come into my heart. That was a kind of phrase we'd invented. Jesus, come into my heart. And effectively, I kind of said to all the other idols, move over a bit, Jesus is coming in. And, 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 and I had all these other things I lived for, loved, gave myself to, and Jesus is coming in as well. And, I mean, I... I I knew, I knew he came in. I, I, felt, I felt myself saved. I felt, I felt God with me. But for four years, I was a mess as a Christian. I was terrible. I was like a hypocrite, really. But I went to church every Sunday morning from then on. Every Sunday morning I was at church. What I did Saturday night was another deal. But Sunday morning I was in church. And, and for years I kept that up. Sometimes I'd try a bit harder, but yeah, I couldn't do it. So I, I just... I just muddled along, and life was not very happy. And then one Sunday, I'm in church, and and the preacher. I mean, it was it was a good preaching church. Was, it, and, and that morning, I'm sitting there, and suddenly I hear God saying to me, "I want your life." And I haven't got your life. I want your life. And I felt this. I felt God say to me, "It's now or never. I want your life, and I want it now." And for the first time in my life, I knew the fear of God. I'd never known the fear of God before. I'd asked Jesus into my, I never knew. I want you, I haven't got you, I want your life, and I want it now. And I remember, boy, this is amazing. I'm sitting there, and I think it's like God's coming, saying, I want your life. And, and my life was a mess then. I didn't, I thought, oh, it wasn't like some noble thing. I thought, okay, you have it. And I went home, and I knelt down, and I said, Lord, okay, I, you have, Control. From now on, you have my life. And that changed everything. 
Have you done that yet? Let me ask you this morning. Have you done that yet? You say, well, I asked Jesus to do my... No, I'm not saying that. I'd done that four years earlier. Have you said, Lord, you be in charge. I give it over to you. See, that's a very different thing. It's like whatever he says, now on, he does. But when he says... And so for me, like, I lost, I lost all my friends because they came to church once and they said, ah, this is weird. And they never came again. So to go with those guys, really, I had to go into a kind of very sinful world. And so I, I lost them. They all, all went, they all went some, I went through a very lonely time. I had to learn church culture. It was very strange in those days, very formal and weird. And it, it was difficult. I went, I went through a kind of a death. And something in me, oh, I'd like to cling to all that stuff I like doing. But you know, when I think of it now, I think, it's like I died. But when I, <laughs> I look back, I think, thank God I could dance on my, on my grave. Because God, God had a whole world for me. God had a life. I'm just some terrible backslidden teenager. He said, I want your life. And I thought, okay. See, it's, it's possible. I, I, I think before that, I was, I was a bit like, um, a branch in a tree, you know, and I asked Jesus into my heart. But it's almost like God said, "No, I want to make I want to make you into an arrow." And and you see, when you make someone into an arrow, it's that piece of wood you want, but you cut it out of the tree and start shaping it into something else. But I didn't. I didn't get out of my tree. I stayed where I was. I just kept living the old life, but I got Jesus with me. It's like I asked Jesus, come into my tree, come into my heart, come into my, you come into my world. And it wasn't really working. Not like in the Bible, when Jesus said to Simon Peter, follow me. And he left and came. Matthew, follow me. He left. Peter, Andrew, James, John, follow me. Like in Abraham in the Old Testament, come out from there. Come to, I'll lead you into something. And I didn't get laid. I said, you come into my world. And it's like, it's like I stayed in my tree. <laughs> and God's saying, I want to make you into an arrow. Imagine, imagine saying to a branch, how'd you like to fly? What's flight? How about speed through the air? What's speed? How about hitting a target? What's a target? See, while you're a branch in a tree, you can't even identify with what God wants to make. When God takes this branch out and cuts it and cuts off the leaves and gets through and begins to shape in, now we can fly. Now speed. Now we can hit targets. It's the same piece of wood, but it goes into a new identity. If anyone's in Christ, a new creation. Same person, new creation. When we give ourselves over, when we say, okay, Lord, cut me out of my tree. You be in charge. Whatever you say, I'll do it. Have you done that yet? That, for me, it was like the beginning of everything. I was just, within a year, I was filled with the Spirit, all sorts of things. Oh, we started, loads of things started happening. When I gave myself to God. If you haven't done that yet, I'd love to invite you this morning. Say, Lord, I just want to do this. I want to get into the real thing. And you know I'm not really fulfilled. I, I want you to be in charge. I want to give my life to you. See, sometimes we can say, well... I really felt I did that. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you had a kind of crisis some years ago. Maybe as a, I don't know, maybe an 18 year old or something. You came and said, Lord, I'm baptized. I give my life to you. And you meant it. But then life goes on. And as it's going on, you know, you're trying to follow him. And then, and then you think, wow, I really want him. I really want her. I'd like that job. And I think, well, I'm not sure Jesus is going that way. Uh, can I have the wheel, Lord? I'll just take the wheel for a bit. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to be driving through this. I'm steering through this one, Lord. Uh, just hold on. I'm going to steer through this. And then you steer through it. Uh, and then and then other things come and you steer through it. And, and as you go on, you suddenly realize, hey, actually, I'm running this life. And the kind of excitement of having Jesus in your life is not like that anymore. He's kind of there, but it's not like he's there. It's not like he's really in it. Because, well, you took the wheel back. You got back in charge again. Whereas the apostles, they, they learn this. They, they start learning it as they go through. So, so Jesus says to Peter, have you caught any fish? They've been fishing. Uh, have you caught any fish? 
and then to throw the net the other side. And you can imagine Peter saying, uh, uh, Jesus, we fishermen, you carpenter, forget it. There's nothing there. We've been out. But he says something like that in a sense. He said, we've been out all night. There's nothing there. But at your word, we'll throw the net. Because he said so. Whatever he says. And what happens? Well, the net's full of fish. They're learning what he says. And then they go through life. And, and it says, do we have to pay taxes? He says, yeah. You, look, just throw, a, just throw a hook in. They throw a hook in, pull out a fish, open the fish. Wow, it's a coin. Amazing. Anything else you want to say to us, Lord? Yeah, go up and prepare the feast. Are we having Passover? Yeah, go up. You'll see a man carrying a vessel on his head. Well, men don't. Women do. But they will find a man, will we? Yeah, you'll find a man carrying the vessel. Follow him. He'll show you a room prepared. Okay, we go. Oh, there's a guy. Follow him. And they say, yes, the room's ready. Wow. Just like he said. Just like he said. And then they say, well, you're going up to Jerusalem. Yeah, we're going up to Jerusalem. Go up. You'll find a guy. You'll find a, you'll find a, a, a young donkey. Take the donkey. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, oh, the Lord has need of him. Okay, let's get the donkey. Oh, it's a donkey. What are you doing? The Lord has need of him. Okay. Hey, this works. This is amazing. Whatever he says to you, you do it. You find, you find you're in a world when he begins to give direction and things happen. Things get, you get, God begins to say, there's a synagogue I'm after for you. <laughs> there's a building I have for you. And, and a whole, a whole church, beloved, a whole people begins to hear God together. We begin to, what is God saying next? And the excitement of an individual, another individual, a group of people, whatever he says to you. Whatever he says to you. Church we are in now in Kingston, there's a, one of the elders, young guy, his wife, got four little blonde kids, just tiny little ones. They've just gone to Istanbul. They're planning a church in Turkey. Wendy and I have just been out there with them. What are you doing? And the parents who are, they're saying, what are you doing? Well, he said it, so we're off. You're doing what? And they're so happy. They keep sending emails. Oh, it's such fun. This is happening. That happened. It's not like, we've got to go. Oh, dear. God spoke. And we want to do it. Because since this is the this is the heart of the thing. God wants us to live by faith, by believing what He says is true. You see, a lot of people think the heart of the human problem is selfishness. They say that's that's the heart of the human problem. People are so selfish. Now, I want to suggest to you the heart of the human problem is unbelief, not selfishness. Unbelief. See, Gandhi wasn't very selfish but he didn't know God. When Satan came to our forefathers, he said, you can't trust God. He's holding out on you. If you'll eat what I'm offering you, you can be as gods. You can be as gods. Then you call, you say, this is in, this is in. You will know. You can have the knowledge to know. That's good, that's bad. You make the choices, you can be as God. Step out from being obedient to the Creator, do your own thing. Just hate what I get. You can be as God. You make your own choices. And that's the heart of the human problem, that we don't, we, we don't trust God. We want to do it our way. We want to make our choices. And, and you see, you, you could say that the, the, the Christian message is saying, come back, obey God. You could, you could argue this. God has made everything. We ought to obey Him. We ought to obey Him. But Paul said this, I've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that comes from faith. God wants us to trust him. God loves trust. He delights in trust. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom of trusting him. Of saying what he says is right. And being persuaded in your heart that what he says is right. And living that out. So he's the king. He's in charge. He rules. And a church of people who know that's true are light in darkness because they know he's right. We trust him. We believe him. We don't do it just because we have to. We do it because well, he said it. It's true. We know it. We believe him. So when I was at work and I was kind of backslidden, they would say to me, are you coming to the party at the weekend? 
And I'd say, well, what's the boss happening? Oh, there'll be loads of drink, there'll be this and that. You know, there'll be lots of girls. And I'd say, well, no, I don't think so. And I, I was trying to get out of it. And I think, oh, well, perhaps I shouldn't do that. Okay, then they'd have the party. Then I'd go back to work on the Monday. And I'd say, what was the party like? Oh, fantastic. There was so much drink and so many beautiful girls. I would say, oh, you'd have loved it. Yeah, yeah. But we're not allowed to. I'm a Christian. I'm not allowed to. Why don't you become a Christian? Then you wouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> See, that, the Christians, a lot of people are not allowed to. See, that, that's the heart of the problem. If that's the heart of the issue, we've missed it completely. Faith says, I believe you. I really believe that you know what's best. I'm, I'm, I'm back into, it's an obedience that's rooted in faith. That we really believe him. That he knows what he's talking about. That we trust him. We're assured he's right. So the things that he says, this is the way to live. We don't think, oh, I don't know about that. I think I've got a better. No, I know you've got all sorts of ideas. But whatever he says to you, that's when things start working out. That's when, that's when Christianity kicks in. That's when the kingdom of God breaks out. And it's not reluctant. It's not like, now God wants you to be very generous. What, before tax or after tax? You know. It's like we're not really persuaded. What can I get away with? How little can I do? It's like, no, you haven't heard yet. You haven't heard yet. You haven't heard. He's, he's to be trusted. We can be confident in him. He wants to call the tune. He wants to be in charge. What, so he can kill us off and smash us and grind us under his heel? No, so he can give you gallons of wine. See, when they, when they said, okay, okay, you do it. You tell us what to do. Okay? It's the best wine you've ever tasted. Gallons of it. Hey, this seems like a good deal. It's not that he wants to crush us. He wants to bless us. He takes away the shame. This, this wedding is going to be filled with shame. We messed up. Now the wedding's famous. We have more wine than anybody's ever had. We even kept back the best stuff. Wow. You're pretty smart. Actually, we just did what we were told. We just did what we were told. God wants us living like that. Do you do that yet? Have you ever given yourself to God? I want to encourage you this morning. For me, it was a life-changing day. I just came and said, Lord, I give you my life. It's very real. I give, I give you the choices now. Everything changed. Everything changed. I've been a Christian for four years. But everything changed that day when I said, Lord, you take over. And God had a story. God had... God had a whole program I had no idea of before. Let's stand to pray.